Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Lisette Baron Carvajal. Today, I will be talking to John Soluri and Claudia Leal about A Living Past, Environmental Histories of Modern Latin America, a fantastic collection they edited alongside Jose Augusto Padua, and that was published by Bergan Books in 2018. Welcome, John and Claudia, and thank you for talking to me today. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Lizette. It's great to be here. Thank you, Lizette. Okay, so this is exciting. I've had had Claudia before to talk about her book, uh, but uh, this is a different conversation. So I would like us to start by talking about each of your personal trajectories. So you are currently located in different countries. You are trained in different disciplines and in different universities. Tell us more about that how you came to be interested in environmental history, and more importantly, perhaps, how you met. So I, yeah, I'm currently based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the United States, where I teach at Carnegie Mellon University in a history department. I'm not from this area, I'm from a neighboring state of New York, and I studied um, and got interested in history first, and then environmental history and Latin American history um, all at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where I somewhat curiously have have a lot of degrees from there, both from undergrad all the way to PhD. It wasn't planned that way, but that's sort of how it happened. And it was really large, I'd say, due to faculty there that I um, was fortunate to get exposed to environmental history fairly early as an undergrad in a course. Um, and that kind of sparked my interest in it. And then from there, it was just kind of little by little, paso per paso, I got interested in in uh, Latin American environmental history. And Claudia, I'll let you say where we met. Well, we met in 2004 at the ASEH conference in Victoria, Canada. In, in Canada, yeah. Yeah, I was finishing my PhD. John was already an accomplished scholar. And um, there were other of the authors of the book at the conference. I met Reynaldo Funes there. I met Stuart McCook. Lisa Sederis was also there, but I had met, met her previously in Bogota. Um, but I think more than that particular conference, what brought us all together was uh, SOLCHA, the Latin American and Caribbean Society for Environmental History, because we continued to meet throughout the years and to form a, a community. By the time I met John, I was doing my PhD in geography at the University of California at Berkeley. And I studied geography precisely because I wanted to do a history that involved the environment. And geography is a discipline that traditionally brings together, you know, the social and the natural or the environmental, brings it together in um, studies that often are historical. And after I finished my PhD, as you know, Lisa, I started working at Universidad de Los Santos in Bogota, where I still where I still work. Yes, and for those who haven't listened to Claudia's interview about her book, go ahead. Landscapes of Freedom is available. Uh, but let's move on. Let's talk about this book. So 
Uh, you tell us a little bit about how you came to know one another and Solskjaer is very important in this. So, so tell us uh, more about how did you bring these articles together, these this, uh, authors? How did you, for example, write the introduction? I'm always intrigued in this sort of collaborative work and how the process of uh, working collectively works. How did you, did you come to agreements? Did you divide at certain parts of the introductions? What did you do? Well, let me tell you about the book and I'll let John talk about the, the introduction. As you said, the book owes a lot to Solcha. Uh, the idea came in the sixth Solcha meeting that took place in Villaleva in 2012. Solcha has the tradition that the organizers of the conference become the presidents. So Stefania Galini and I became presidents of the society that... June, I believe. And at the time, I was also a fellow at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society in Munich. And uh, Christoph Mauch, the director, was at Bijaleba. And we returned to Bogota together in the car. And as you know, it took us several hours. We talked about many things. And one of the things we talked about was um, what I was going to do as co-president of the society. I thought that helping solve in a way one of the problems that I considered Latin American environmental history had uh, would be useful. And that problem had to do with the dispersion of the works and uh, some level of parochialism in the work that we did. And what I mean is, you know, there were works done in Mexico, Colombia and Argentina, often thesis that could be undergraduate thesis or master's thesis. And it was very hard for people from other countries to know about these works and to understand why they were important because they were they tended to be very local. So initially I thought that we could do some kind of work that would tell the rest of the people about what kind of research had been done in each country. And I remember Christoph telling me, well, you know, doing that kind of thing is going to be boring. Historiography is boring, but history is really exciting. So um, that's how the idea started taking shape of doing a book that would be a general environmental history of Latin America. And back in Munich, Christoph and I thought about inviting John and Jose, which was absolutely key because we would have somebody was a native English speaker, a native Portuguese speaker, and then me, a native Spanish speaker. And... Um, we, or actually the Rachel Carson Center, invited John and Jose to Munich, and we met there in, uh, <clears throat> by the end of the year, started thinking about the key authors, key topics, and came up with what could be a book, invited everybody, everybody accepted. And so that's, that's how you know, the idea of the book um, started. But something else that I think is very important has to do with the methodology of the book. And here again, the Carson Center is very important, and is that we did two workshops. The first work workshop in 2013, um, we discussed short articles or extended abstracts of each of the chapters. The idea was that we wanted to have a lot of freedom in how to think about general topics. And we were facing a big difficulty. Um, I had to write about jungles. Um, Sean and, and Bob had to talk about cattle ranching. And everybody had to talk about general topics when we did not have enough environmental history studies on those particular topics. So how were you going to do a synthesis of something that we didn't have enough information about? Um, and so we thought that we wanted people to be bold, people to think 
freely about how to conceptualize this broader um these broader histories that we had already limited to the 19th and the 20th centuries. So we wrote these articles and we met in Sasaima near Bogota. We rented a little hotel and were secluded there for like three days. And I think that was very important. That was important because we were concentrated. We were together. We had no distractions. Uh, We were able to get to know each other intellectually, but also become closer friends. Uh, and then we had a second workshop to discuss the actual articles in 2014 and you know moved on from there. But this idea of meeting in these secluded places and have thorough discussions of our work, I think was um, was very important to produce the book and you know to grow as people and as scholars. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I just want <clears throat> to echo that. And we should probably, again, acknowledge the Carson Center, which not entirely, but largely underwrote a lot of the travel and um, enable us to come together and work as a group. And it was probably, in fact, as I was just reflecting on now listening to Claudia, I think it was probably the most enjoyable and kind of inspiring part of the process was actually having everybody together and really focused in on a project. It's so rare when you have both, you know, friends and really smart, uh, creative people um, all together. And you really sort of have, have, you all have your mutual attention, right? For like two or three days, which is just so rare, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, that was fantastic. And I think that was absolutely essential for how the, how the project came together. The, I mean, honestly, so the introduction in here, I am straining to remember uh, a little bit. What I, what I will say about the introduction, which is frankly, uh, more, so, so in the process was I took a first sort of draft at it and then shared it with, uh, Jose Augusto and Claudia. Um, and yeah, we sort of talked about different you know, things that, you know, probably had to be in the, had to be in it. It was actually, uh, from my perspective, it was actually challenging. It's one of the hardest things I had to write. And if I'm not mistaken, the first version, which I'm not even entirely sure I shared it with Claudia and Jose Augusto, I just, I trashed, I didn't, I didn't like it at all. And it was, it was, like I said, so surprisingly hard. You're gonna ask me why was it hard? And I think it was partly, you know, the nature of the beast and sort of having to write about an introduction that can incorporate you know, the fact you've got 10 or 12 different authors and voices and, and themes and very broad themes um, to kind of tie together. And, but also really made me think about some of the questions I know you're interested in having us talk about, you know, what is environmental history? What does it mean to write environmental history of a region called Latin America? Um, so, which, yeah, I guess I will talk more about, um, I'm sure soon, but that was, uh, it was quite, actually found to be quite challenging. Um, so, but it was a, fairly typical process iteration. I did a draft, shared it with Claudia and Jose Augusto. We got some feedback. I think at some point we shared it with our other, um, the other contributors um, as well. Um, Claudia, feel free to remind me if there's something vital I'm forgetting. Well, there were actually two drafts. I mean, the introduction we wrote twice. So yes, you did share with us that first uh, draft, John. But I would echo again, as as you echoed me uh, before, that we thought not only of presenting the articles, but actually almost writing a new article for the book in thinking about, so what about, what is Latin American environmental history? And that was a question we had been dealing with throughout the workshops. Uh, And we had asked 
authors to think about, so what is particular about cattle ranching in Latin America in relation to cattle ranching in other parts of the world, or what is particular about forest history in Latin America in relation to forest history in other parts of the world. And it wasn't easy. And, you know, not all of us managed to to think and frame um, our articles that way. So in the introduction, it was even harder because it wasn't about one particular topic, you know, but about everything uh, regarding the region. So we, you know, brought ideas from different places and tried to think about those four sections and those four big ideas that would define um, the the environmental history of this particular part of the world. Um, so, yeah, it was challenging, but it was it was it was fun. Yes, but I mean, I'm sure it was challenging, but the the introduction does a, such a great job in bringing everything together. And we're going to talk more about uh, what is specific of uh, Latin American environmental histories. But before we do that, um, I wonder if we can talk about environmental history as a field more generally. We, you know, maybe some of the listeners that are hearing you don't really know what what is environmental history and and that is very important to understand the contribution you're making so is it studying the environment is it is it using the environment as a lens is it considering the agency of the environment is it all of these things and more and i guess do you see the definition of some of environmental history as something that is more or less fixed or is it still changing and i don't know open to discussion we said, you know, I don't think it's that hard to think about what um, environmental history is. Environmental history is a part, is a way of thinking of history that goes beyond just uh, humans. It's a kind of human-centered history, but that takes into account the rest uh, of nature. So it is not, in a strict sense, studying the environment, as you mentioned before, as a geologist or a biologist um, would do. Uh, but it can certainly be thought of as a lens to address um, older historical topics. For instance, in our book, we have a chapter on cities, we have a chapter on science, we had a chapter on cattle ranching. You know, all those are not exclusive topics of environmental history. They're topics that had been studied by historians for you know decades. But if you look at them through an environmental lens you will see things that other people have not seen before. So it's a lens that broadens our understanding of of history and also that opens new topics. In the case of her book, for example, the last chapter, Emily Wakel's chapter on conservation, it's a typical topic uh, or the, the recent emphasis on animals that's lacking on the book is clearly something that is more typically environmental and so doing environmental history opens new 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 topics. Uh, you mentioned um, agency, the agency of the environment in human history, and you know there's been debate about the if it makes sense to think about agency uh, because it assumes consciousness or intent and it therefore you know leads us to confusion because say take our present situation with the coronavirus. It is very clear that the coronavirus, but it's that the coronavirus actually is acting, uh, but, but it doesn't have an agenda, but it's still an actor and a part of history that we have to take into account if we want to understand, you know, the conundrum that we're facing today. So 
I'd say that ideally environmental history takes nature seriously in the sense that it understands how nature has affected the course of history. But environmental history can also think more about, and actually it started more thinking about how people had an impact on the environment rather than the other way around. But, you know, it can merge um, merge both. And, I mean, I don't know what you would say, John, but people have defined environmental history various manners, but I don't think that there has been a manner that was the way people define environmental history a few decades ago. And another way, that's the way people define environmental history. Now, um, I'd say topics, emphasis have changed, um, but I wouldn't focus so much on the on the definition. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would actually agree with that. I was thinking very similarly that the it's, I think what's changed since I've been, you know, since I started to read about it, is the you know some of the, I mean I mean the general definition that I always see in most books you know talks something about some kind of interactions right between maybe that's the only word I would add or emphasize right interactions between people human cultures and then the non-human uh, nature as, as Claudia said and then the questions right of, of agency and and what who's acting on what gets a little more is somewhat debated, but I think that's the basic notion. And what has probably changed is the location, sort of the geography um, of environmental histories and some of the, some of the human actors, some of the settings and questions that have raised have probably shifted a bit over time, expanded, as you probably would imagine. Um, and I think, as Claudia said, maybe getting away a little bit from just tracing, documenting destruction. Um, we often talk about Warren Dean's uh, a very big book on Brazil and the Atlantic Forest, and the subtitle is the you know destruction of the Atlantic Forest. Um, that sort of oftentimes is portrayed as an amazing book. That nevertheless, you know, as the title subtitle suggests, focuses largely on the the story is one of a, you know the devastation of a forest. And I think that a, some environmental histories now continue to do that, but I think a lot of them also are looking at more, like I said, more interactive, maybe a little more open-ended kind of present and future you know, in terms of what direction a particular ecosystem or processes is moving in. Okay, so let me ask you then uh, some of the topics that have drawn the attention of scholars so far. So in the introduction, you tell us this. So can you perhaps mention a few of them? Uh, maybe because you have different regions of specialties, maybe you can tell us in your regions, what are some of the topics that you see that have been developed um, there? And perhaps for for listeners that are looking for research ideas or new topics, what are some of those themes that haven't received that much attention um, in, in the historiography of Latin American environmental history, but do you think are very important right now, for example? Well, is it one of the topics that or I would say the topic that dominated Latin American environmental history um, early on was um, deforestation. John was mentioning Warren Steen, you know, wonderful book about the destruction of the Atlantic forest. You have um, Reynaldo Funes' book about Cuba, how it started being an island covered by forests and ended up being an island covered by grasses. Um, And, that um, makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense because forests are the type of biome that is more extensive, that covers the widest area in Latin America. And also because 
environmental history is a product of the environmental movement and uh, the environmental movement in Latin America has a lot to do with the awareness of biodiversity and biodiversity is tied to tropical rainforests and the threat that was uh, perceived at a global scale uh, with the deforestation of this particular kind of environment. So many of these early histories um, were talking about how forests were being destroyed. And forests have continued to be an important topic in Latin American history, like in the case of my book that that, that you know about. But it's not the only one there. There are many others, uh, Chris Boyer's book, um, for example. And what I think it's important to show is that even if the uh, a lot of attention has been placed on forests, the way that forests have been studied has changed. And in more recent years, they have been seen more through a lens of social history, of how we can understand not only how we have destroyed them, but how we have lived with them and the kind of conflicts and tensions associated with people relating to to, to forested environments. Um, regarding topics uh, or environments that need to be addressed in environmental history, we could sit here and, you know, talk about that uh, the rest of, of the interview. Um, you know, we've done much less than what we have not done. But that said, I think that one very important topic that needs to be addressed and has not been addressed enough is energy. There's a book that should be coming out soon by Germán Vergara about Mexico and, you know, several articles. But um, I think that that's still um, a topic which students could address. And something that John and I share is um, our, our love and passion for animals. And their animals have been studied in Latin American history, but there's still a lot that could be that could be said. And let me just mention one particular animal that I think it's absolutely crucial. And I haven't read anything really about this animal, not, not one single article, and it's uh, mules. And you come from Colombia too, Lisette. Hmm. And we have one very famous mule, which is Conchita. She's uh, Juan Valdez's um, mule, you know, the symbol of, you know, Colombia or coffee Colombia uh, being Juan Valdez, the coffee grower. And he comes with his mule. And it's not only the history of, of coffee. It's, it's a wider history of the building of the country and not only of Colombia. I think it's true for Chile. It's true for Mexico. And, um, Reaction Books, uh, the British um, publisher, has a wonderful series about animals that include mostly um, animals from other parts of the world rather than from Latin America. But it does have one of its books on llamas, but there's no book on mules. So that that's something that we're definitely lacking. I see. Claudia, it's nice to know what your next project is going to be. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> I, be, I believe in Colombia too. Was there not something known as the Biblio Burro? I think I believe I heard a story about that. Um, I could be wrong about a guy I think who had a mobile library that he took. Um, I'll, I'll have to double check. But you know, Reaction the, but, Books has a has a book about donkeys, okay. but not oh, about mules. But not mules. Okay, I forgot about that Reaction series. Um, fair enough. Um, yeah, I would agree that definitely want to underscore that I think the field there's still more to be written than has been written at this point in time. Um, and just to maybe pick up on one build off what Claudia was saying in terms of energy. So for example, you know, one could imagine, and certainly in the case of say Mexico, 
there has been quite a you know economic histories and social histories about say the oil industry um similarly maybe in places like ecuador and uh you know even colombia a little bit maybe more anthropo- anthropologists and ethnographies and histories but there's material there but i think conceptualizing i think one thing that environmental history historians do is also you know sort of in how they're the questions they're asking about energy in this case and sort of maybe even how they conceptualize what they mean by energy so just to give an example of actually not necessarily an area i'm working on but a manuscript I happen to have read recently. You can think about mining, which another like perennial classic topic in almost every Latin American country, mining, you know, particularly in the colonial era, if not the modern era, figures prominently. And I think that an environmental historian, you know, could could look at that focusing on any number of things, like say the pollution generated, the occupational health, like intersecting with actually history of medicine and occupational health. Of course, the serious impacts on miners' bodies um, and lives, um, and oftentimes the people in the surrounding regions. Um, but you can also think about in terms of energy, right? And actually, to come toss a link to the animals, right? You can, you can imagine an early mining complex such as Potosi, which was, you know, gave rise to one of the biggest cities in the world in the 16th century and mobilized thousands, if not tens of thousands of workers. It also mobilized thousands, if not tens of thousands of animals, um, pack animals um, of various kinds. And so that is the kind of thing that, and, and why, you know, in some ways it's using that animal, right, for their, for their energy. It's not using it for food. It's not using it, um, it's primarily using it to, to be as a beast of burden and to carry things. And so the, the energy that would be used, and then say there'd be energy for smelting, right? So we think about extracting the mineral, but then you rarely extract a pure nugget of gold or silver or copper, et cetera. Um, there's almost invariably a big process of transformation that's super energy intensive. So those are the kinds of ways, you know, one can, in other words, you're not necessarily focus on energy per se, but you might be thinking about the sugar mill and I'm going to focus on the energy dimensions of producing sugar. I'm going to look at the energy dimensions of, you know, mining silver or one, you know, certainly there's also a lot of work to do histories on building dams for hydroelectricity, on drilling for oil or gas, or, you know, soon we'll have environmental histories of lithium um, from places like Bolivia. But uh, yeah, so that I just want to say, I think there are, that's just one example. I think energy is a huge field. Um, I think urban environments remain understudied given how long Latin America and the Caribbean have been urbanized and given how many people presently, you know, their, their realities are largely urban, what we, most of us would call urban environments, urban landscapes. So there's a lot, a lot of possibilities there. And then the last thing I'll say too, that I think is happening and there's certainly room for more to happen. So actually Claudia's book, Claudia does, is a great example of this, of people taking a topic that may be somewhat familiar to historians, social, cultural, economic historians, like could be mining, could be issues of slavery, post-emancipation, health, and then looking for intersections, right, with environmental dimensions and angles on that. And and again, that could be myriad. There's, I'm not going to, I could go on again for the rest of the interview, giving those examples. But so I do think there's both sort of new field, new sort of topics to look at. And there's also ways to take more familiar topics to people working other subfields of history and find ways for the environment to kind of intersect with those. Wonderful. So listeners, there there you have lots of ideas, the, a history of the mule <laughs> and uh, studying energy 
Um, I mean, there's so many things that are still um, to be done, but this book is a great way to think of what is being done right now. And just uh, to point it out, this book has also been published in Spanish, I think by the Fondo de Cultura Económica, if I'm right, in 2019. So if some listeners are more comfortable with reading in Spanish, they can also look that option. So let's move on to to some of the topics you're talking about. And, and, and the first of the four features that you identify in Latin American environmental histories. Um, let's talk more in depth about them. Let's start with the first, which is colonial legacies. Um, so what are some of the most pervasive colonial legacies that environmentalist scholars have identified so far in Latin American environmental histories? And maybe here you can mention a couple of chapters or one chapter that discuss or develop this topic, this feature in the book. So, yeah, so the, the question, and actually, I, I, I hate to sort of deflect here, but this actually raises a, a question we wrestled with of, you know, do we include not only the colonial period, but the pre-colonial period? And, you know, for just largely for just reasons of limits of our abilities, time and, you know, energy and, and other reasons, you know, we decided to focus on the modern period. But paradoxically, perhaps, um, we, most of the chapters actually, I think, do extend back into the colonial period. Because I guess one maybe thing that, to come back to another theme, you know, what defines environmental history? Well, I certainly don't want to impose some kind of, you know, oh, it's got to be a cover a long period of time to be legitimate. I do think environmental historians tend to probably on general think on a longer time frame than maybe other kinds of historians in, in general. Not, I'm not saying every study is going to do that, but I think there's sort of a, a long durée kind of Rodelian inspiration that, that underlies a lot of the approach of environmental historians, if not the actual book and research they produce. So that said, that means that, you know, certainly we need to think about the colonial legacies. And I'd say to, I'll, I'll just do what I sort of tend to teach a lot about and, and focus on is, is certainly the exchange, um, what has for a long time been known as the Columbian exchange, a very important concept um, termed by uh, Alfred Crosby, late Alfred Crosby, um, about the introduction of pathogens, animal biota, right, living living matter uh, that was transferred um, across oceans and brought to the Americas. Um, more recently, scholars have also tried to write in the African contributions, so to speak, or the exchanges between the Americas and the continent of Africa, um, as well as Eurasia, into that. So I think that's certainly one. You know, we can come back to Claudius Mule. Um, you know, animals. Um, Many of the animals that are going to be central to building the nation states of Latin America, you know, our colonial legacies. There, of course, would be new breeds and things brought in over the 19th and 20th centuries. But the basic reorganization of the fauna, you could argue, was certainly started. Um, that's one, I would say, important. By no means the only, but one colonial legacy. Um, Claudia, maybe do you want to talk about the kind of also the paradoxical legacies of forests? Um, I don't know exactly what, what you're thinking about, John, but one thing that John McNeil emphasizes in the epilogue that has to do with uh, Emily's paper has to do with even going back in time to what uh, she calls deep history. You know, so the importance of the megafaunal extinctions and uh, the fact that 
people or humans came to the Americans later than to other parts of the world and how that shaped the particular environments that have a lot to do with what's happening today. And, you know, the way Emily draws those connections is by suggesting, because there's not enough research being done to date, um, that the abundance of forest has a lot to do with the uh, wide extinction of uh, big herbivores at the end of the Pleistocene and the recovery of other some of those spaces by um, trees and thus by forests. And so Latin American environmental history would be responding to changes that happened 10,000 years ago. So, you know, it's the colonial legacies are important. The pre-colonial legacies are important, but also the legacies of things that happened 1,000 years ago are crucial for understanding our current environmental situation. Yes. And I mean, we still have a lot to cover. So I would like us to talk about future number two, uh, which you call states from nature. And here you highlight um, how the literature has shown the importance of nature in processes of state formation and also in the transformations of the state. So I want to divide my question along um, temporal lines because I think the distinction is important. So as you powerfully say in the book, 19th century Latin American states were literally hewn from nature. So republics were built uh, on bird shit and bananas. And I laughed when I read this because it's true. Um, cattle hides and sheep fleas, coffee and copper. Um, can you perhaps tell us more about the specificities of the 19th century, of this 19th century history? And then my second question is about the 20th century. And here I basically wonder if you can tell our listeners what were some of the changes experienced in this period. You mentioned, for example, that once the states grew stronger, they returned some natural resources to the public domain. And you also talk about the creation of natural parks and building of nature states. So can you perhaps tell our listeners more about the chapters or one chapter that discuss what happened in, in this period? And Claudia, maybe here you can talk about your chapter. So how did jungles transition from being considered threatening to being deemed as threatened and thus in need of preservation? What was the role in the, of the state in that story? Okay, Lisa, there's a lot packed into that question, so let me see if I can address it all. When you think about the... Okay, so the idea of including a section on um, called States of Nature in part has to do with the particular place of Latin American environmental history in the broader environmental history or in, you know, in history of the world in general, you know, because Latin America's packed with what used to be called the third world or, you know, call it, you know, poorer nations, de uh, developed world or whatever, you know, along with parts of Asia and Africa that were largely under colonial rule throughout the 19th century or part of the 19th century and part of the 20th century. So when you're talking about 19th and 20th century Latin America, as we're doing in this book, we're talking about a Republican period in which, sure enough, there are imperial forces acting upon Latin America, but Latin America was dominated by or was characterized by independent uh, nation states rather than colonies, although there were still some colonies like Cuba and Puerto Rico. So what was the role of... Latin American environments in this process of nation building that took place throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. One of the things that Jose Augusto's book, uh, chapter, sorry, and 
partly my chapter two, show is how those early nations were territorially concentrated in relatively small spaces. So Brazil is a, it's a perfect example. Um, Brazil is this, you know, you look at the map, it's the biggest country in Latin America. It's absolutely huge. But what that country actually was at the beginning of the 19th century, um, not a republic for sure, but a monarchy, was little pockets along the Atlantic coast. And part of the challenges that the Brazilian the new Brazilian uh, nation state has was one keeping together that big territory, but also having effectively some sort of control over that territory. And as Jose Augusto says in a you know beautiful way, that territory is not just you know space or area or hectares; it's concrete forests, grasses, animals, mountains, soils, rocks. Um, so building the nation had to do with how do you deal with all that nature that existed in all those places that were effectively outside of state control? So what Jose Augusto does beautifully in his chapter is looking at the history of Brazil, and that could be a way of looking at the history of Nicaragua or looking at the history of Argentina or looking at the history of any other country in Latin America through a territorial lens. And territory is a way to look at uh, the environment that, in a way, is contained uh, by that by that territory, and um, those those material realities, those environmental material realities uh, that existed in the territory, were used to build the state in different ways. One, which is the one that you've mentioned, is by turning part of that nature into commodities, either mining guano, for example, or cultivating coffee or cultivating sugarcane, and thus using the forests that were burned to uh, produce the nutrients for those crops, or using the soils, or using the water, and turning all that into commodities that were afterwards uh, exported. But another way that we think about less is titling the land or giving the land in the form of concessions to entrepreneurs that would build roads, map the territories, and thus help understand what the territory was and therefore try to control it a bit uh, a bit better. So, so those are different ways in which 19th century states were built by um, this particular relation with nature, but those relations are not only material, as the ones that have um, that have uh, uh, said, and maybe I wasn't so clear in saying that. Part of what I think it's important of this material or the use of material nature is that coffee exports or uh, the selling of lands brought money into state coffers that was used in a very literal way to build the state. It was used to pay, for example, people who were working for the state and that actually made the state. So, you know, nature turns into a commodity, pays taxes, and then you have a bureaucrat that can work and embody in the very strict sense um, the state. Uh, But also symbolic way of using nature was also important. And then we can refer to Stuart McCook's article that talks about the building of national floras, or you could, 
you know, do the same, for example, with um, national fauna, in the case of Colombia, very important, the birds of Colombia, although that's already in the 20th century. But this idea that you build the nation, that you build the idea of what Colombia is or what Venezuela is or what Costa Rica is by showing that Costa Rica is the place that has all this amazing variety of plants or or animals, although more, more usually plants. And then when you move on to uh, to the 20th century, as Mirna Santiago shows in her um, article about mining and oil, there is a movement that in a way goes against some of what had predominated in earlier years, and it's returning some of those strategic economic sectors that have to do with natural resources to the state, like uh, oil or some, um, let's say, nitrate or copper, I meant, rather than, than nitrate, in the case of Chile, for example. So the, the nationalization of these, uh, of these resources, uh, fundamental for the building of state enterprises that control these key, um, this key resources uh, throughout the 20th century, starting uh, early with the nationalization of oil in, um, in Mexico. But also... Another important way in which nature helped make the state was in the second half of the 20th century, the development of a new state responsibility um, related to the care of nature that had to do with the creation of particular institutions, institutes of natural resources, but also administrative areas under the name of forest reserves or national parks. Some of these come earlier in the first half of the, of the 20th century that are part of the process of the expansion of the state that it's characteristic of the 20th century in Latin America and in other parts of the world. Uh, and I didn't mention anything about my article, but I guess I can mention that in one of the few questions that are awaiting us. Yeah, and I mean, thank you so much for trying to answer that very, I don't know, complicated question, or it had a lot of things that you uh, had to address there. But I think this is a sample of what listeners can find in the book. Uh, there's so many different things that are covered here. And so that's why listeners should go and check out the book to see all the richness of the different articles. So let's move uh, on to feature number three. Uh, which you call transoceanic trade and ecological exchanges. So here you tell us that transoceanic movements have connected and transformed other regions of the world, but the magnitude and significance of exchanges between the Americans and Africa, Eurasia, and the Pacific are unique. Uh, you also tell us that multidirectional exchanges increased dramatically in the 19th century. So... What are some of the chapters that illustrate this? Um, here I wonder if John can speak about his contribution to the volume, a chapter that analyzes agrodiversity and that I believe highlights biodiversity in the context of rapidly changing societies. Certainly a product of a longer history of trans-oceanic trade and ecological exchanges. Sure. So I, let me actually start. I'm going to mention, um, I will talk about my chapter, but I'm going to start by actually talking about the chapter that uh, Reynaldo Funes wrote on about the sort of the greater Caribbean region. And although his theme wasn't necessarily organized around this particular notion of, of trade and ecological exchanges, 
the Caribbean is one area that for environmental historians, as I think other kinds of historians too, have really emphasized as being uh, epitomizing you know, the modern world of, of exchange and, and movement across oceans. And so he talks about you know, uh, the introduction of sugar cane, and that was, of course, accompanied by the enslavement of Africans for centuries. Um, talks about a little bit about the rise of the uh, subsequently the banana industry in that area, and then eventually actually tourism, which in some ways is also a certain form of, of exchange and 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 maybe not literally trade, but you know, movement of peoples internationally as well as goods. And I I begin with that because in some ways, and I think actually woven through a lot of the chapters, this theme appears in, in different ways. Um, and some of this is maybe a, a pretty familiar chapter for, you know, scholars of economic history, you know, think about like the, or, or um, and also somewhat polemics too, right? Things like the open veins of Latin America, um, that metaphor of things flowing out of Latin America is one that I certainly think is evident in several of the chapters in the volume. But actually, one thing I want to actually mention is one of the things that I really appreciated and took away from my experience of having these workshops with so many people from Latin America and working in Latin American context is that when I thought about writing a chapter, well, it was really just going to be about a chapter of you know agriculture and the environment is how we sort of initially broadly conceptualized it. You know, I was thinking I'd do some kind of comparative of, of export economies. So in other words, it would really emphasize transoceanic trade in the 19th and 20th centuries. But then, you know, people, partly Claudia, but others too, were encouraging me saying, well, you know, that story has been told quite a bit. And, you know, maybe there's a need to think about a different kind of dimension or a different way of thinking about agriculture. Um, so in some ways... I do, so in some ways I look at, uh, in, in my chapter where I look at agrodiversity, what I'm actually trying to engage with is this historiography, here I'm really talking about, and history of agriculture oriented toward exports. Let's just take, you know, to, you, can, you, can, you guys know the stereotypical ones, coffee from Colombia, sugar from Cuba, bananas from Honduras, et cetera, et cetera. And what I, what I wanted to do is think about, well, yes, that's all happening, but also there's still people, a lot of, you know, growing numbers of people in Latin America in the 19th and 20th centuries who need to eat foods. And they're oftentimes actually not drinking coffee. They're not eating the bananas that are exported. They're not eating the sugar that is exported. So, you know, what are they eating and what are the environmental and ecological and cultural implications of all that? So I actually look in my chapter at things like sort of I purposely took some classic things like maize, um, indigenous foods. And this, again, ties into pre, pre-Columbian legacies of things like maize, potatoes and, and tubers from the Andean region. Um, the bean in English, what we call the common bean, frijoles. I don't really know how else to, to call them. And trying to think about how those actually you know, the role that they've played in their ability to kind of persist in context of these transoceanic exchanges. So I'm both situating that chapter in that history of exchange, but I'm actually kind of in some ways trying to get, uh, what I want to say, look at what's happening in the shadows, so to speak, of, of those plantations, export-oriented plantations. And I owe a lot of that to the inspiration I drew from the, my, my fellow authors for, for going that, that route. So again, I'm not exactly <laughs> like Claudia in the last question, I didn't exactly answer this question, but, um, 
so so yes, I think there's a huge history, and I continue to research about this huge exchanges of plants and animals and, and people and goods and commodities. I do think that's really important in Latin American history. It continues to be important with things like soya, soybeans and lithium and other products, right? But I also think it's important to, to try to find ways to to tell stories that are not only focused on on that scale, right? That transoceanic scale. And I'll just end very briefly by saying how coffee actually, I, I do write about coffee because I think it's an interesting example of a agroecosystem that is both, you know, coffee was uh, native, Arabica coffees are native to Ethiopia and they, that form the basis of the industry, say in Colombia, but when they get brought to Colombia, they sort of get, so it's a globalization that then gets kind of localized, right? People in Colombia take that coffee plant and they create agroecosystem that is composed of crops that are, you know, probably cultivated for millennia in what is today Colombia, as well as newcomers like coffee. So I think in that sense, the trade and ecological exchanges are just that. They are exchanges and they are two-way and they happen on multiple geographical scales. Yeah. And here, I guess um, it is important for us to clarify that these features that you're discussing in the book are not mutually exclusive. So chapters share many of these features, right? This is just a way in which we will you structure the introduction and in which we are discussing the chapters. And I found it super interesting as a way kind of to frame the book. So so we arrive to the feature feature four, which um, you call tropicality, confronting the diversity. Can you can you please explain our listeners what tropicality is and why has it been an important feature of Latin American environmental history? So Tropicality is both a you know, material reality and a, an idea, a way of thinking of that particular reality. You know, a good chunk of Latin America lies in the tropical zone. And that, that means it receives a particular strong amount of energy from, from the sun. But uh, tropicality has to do with the ways that that particular environment has been interpreted. And it has been examined uh, largely uh, through how colonialism has understood or how the, the influence of colonialism has led Europe, for example, to understand tropical environments um, in Asia uh, and to some extent in Africa as well. So when thinking about what is particular and what is important about Latin American environments, the fact that it is in the tropics stands out. So the material aspect of it stands out, but also the way it has been read. And I think there are two chapters that address this issue more than others. One is Reinaldo Funes' article in the Great Caribbean that John was talking about a minute ago. And uh, Reinaldo shows how tropicality, how the 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 way that the energy um, of the Caribbean islands was used and transformed into a commodity changed from a long history of plantation, that is, of converting this solar energy into bananas or um, more importantly uh, sugarcane and exported to other parts of the world and then later how after the negative side of the tropics had been conquered and that has to do with disease and how 
in the early 20th century displaces through the new understanding of uh, how diseases were transmitted and how that helped, for example, to control yellow fever. And that allowed for a transformation of uh, the ideas of these tropics where people from other latitudes could not come to a place full of sun that people could enjoy. So you have the development of the tourist economy in which the sun is associated not necessarily with sugarcane, but with beaches and places that tourists themselves can experience. So that is one environment that is a symbol of tropical environments, but the other very important environment is uh, the one I write about, which is uh, tropical rainforests, or rather jungles, as I um, as I call them in, in the chapter. So jungles embody both that negative side of the idea of tropicality, those environments that are associated with chaos, that are places associated with disease and with death, but they also have the side that we could associate with the plantation economy, and it's uh, they are considered, you know, rich and lush, and uh, in a way full of full of opportunities. So, what I sketch broadly in the in the article is how the idea of threatening forests that you know still still exists gets transformed although not completely into the idea of threatened jungles associated with the rise of the concept of biodiversity. And biodiversity, as I was saying before, has to do with valuing the richness of tropical environments or the richness of the natural world in general, but that is more profuse, if you wish, in uh, tropical environments and in tropical forests, and bringing to the world attention that that diversity is in danger. So although forests were used during the 19th century for the extraction of several resources, the most famous of which is rubber, and although some relatively small areas in the broader Latin American scales were cut for the development of plantations uh, in Brazil and in Central America, for example, the pace of forest destruction really increased in the 1960s and especially in the 1970s, bringing you know this um, idea to the global stage um, that tropical forests in Latin America but also in other parts of the world needed to be protected. So that's kind of the broad the broad idea sketched in this in this article. So um, we're running out of time, and I've I've taken too much of your time already. Uh, so, but I cannot help uh, myself ask you to ask you about the present. So you say this book does not provide solutions to present-day problems, which we have many problems. But it sparks this book sparks conversation about the region's present and possible futures. So I wonder uh, how your thinking has changed or evolved with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Is this crisis inviting you to make new questions or? see the importance of new topics. Tell us a little bit what you're thinking about right now when everything, this is happening. I I mean, I, I don't know you, John, but for me, it's, you know, very obvious that disease becomes, you know, a topic that's important when you have a virus doing what the, this virus is, is doing. I read David Quammen's book on um, zoonosis and I, and I loved it. And I, you know, this has to do with animals, and it was a part of the history of animals that I teach a course on history of animals, and it was part of 
the history of animals that I had not thought about really at all. So it did open that line of, I wouldn't say research because I'm not doing any research, but at least of inquiry of reading and trying to understand things better. Something else that the, that the, um, that COVID uh, did to my way of thinking of things had to do, has to do with what I was mentioning before. And it was something that had already started precisely by thinking about the history of animals and understanding that part of my life has to do, the way I live every day has a lot to do with things that happened thousands of years ago. So, you know, the most basic example would be, I have a dog. This dog has been incredibly important for me during this um, COVID crisis. And I have a dog because dogs were domesticated. I mean, I don't know if it was 40,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago, but many, many thousand years ago, depending on who you read and what kind of theory you adhere to. But uh, I think that because, and viruses that evolved almost at the beginning of life, take your mind in terms of you know stretching time just way 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 back so i think intellectually for me trying to come to grips with what's going on has made me think a lot about time and how different time frames that have to do with life and nature are important to understand uh, the world i'll leave it at that so um yes i, I was just gonna say with like I share with Claudia that I also have a dog and um, have been doing a lot of thinking and interacting with my dog uh, during the pandemic and also teaching a course about animals and thinking about just how long people and dogs have been um, have been interacting. But uh, but let me go just to go to a different different something else to think about, I think, for environmental history that I think about as an environmental historian and, and have been wrestling with is not only sort of the deep time, and I do think that viruses and things like that really sort of force one to do that. But also to the extent, though, that the, to go the other direction, that the virus becomes so politicized in, in many different contexts, right? And um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that I wrestle with is is history, you know, as well, what, you know, again, what is the role of history, history what's the role of historians, um, you know, we can revisit, you know, pan- earlier pandemics and analyze them. And I think that is certainly useful for sure to, to be able to recognize these things are not, you know, oftentimes totally new, e- including the politicization of of disease is certainly not a new thing um, or other kinds of environmental phenomena. But but that said, it's true that I find I find it to be ch- it's, it's a challenging moment in that I and I vacillate between thinking that history you know, is, is a really important for providing perspective on these moments and thinking that it seems like most people, this is going to sound a little elitist, but you know, just don't seem to care about history. And, and so, um, or they have a crazy distortion on history. And uh, so it, yeah, I wonder if it, you know, if it's, it's sometimes it feels not so relevant um, to me, but I do think the, the point, you know, we talked about this. I remember another thing I credit Claudia with, you know, is it's, it's so typical for historians, I think at the end of a book or the beginning of, a, well, the end of a, writing a book and sometimes at the beginning of the book, you know, to say, but they feel like they have to sort of explain, well, here's why this, you know, all the stuff that happened in the past is relevant to the present and the future. And, you know, it's true, you know, you read a book, it's not going to, it's not going to change much other than maybe your own thinking or imagination, which I think is actually really important. But I just actually, uh, 
finished writing another sort of revising introduction to something. And I do think like environmental history, it's not just an academic discipline for many practitioners. And I actually think it's okay to acknowledge that people have a political or if you want to think of affinity or belief that humans connections to nature really matters, right? And it's something we have to have central in our thinking, in our policymaking, in our politics. And I actually think this is okay. I mean, I think it's, I've been, I've been actually also teaching a class about capitalism and, you know, capitalism, the term, at least in, in, in German and English, it was born as a term of both analysis and polemic. And in some ways, I think environment, environmental history, I'm not going to say it's exactly the same, but I think there's some similarities there. And, and the more I think about it, like in this moment, I actually think that is okay um, because I think it can be both analytical, but it can also be, I think the analysis for it to have, for it to capture people's imaginations who are not practitioners, I, I think it kind of makes sense. It has to have some, you know, we don't have to call it politics, but it's got to have some meaning to people's lives or, you know, it's kind of antiquarianism and like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go out and you know, study, study a mule, but which is cool, but uh, for me, but for other people, it may be completely, you know, trivial. And so you have to, I think, be able to show, I think, I think it's the power of environmental history to capture non-historians is precisely in its ability to say something about the present and the future. And, and I'm still struggling to figure out how to do that. I certainly don't claim I know how to do that. But I actually think it's something we have to hold on to as environmental historians um, to stay relevant, actually. You know, a question that I have is, will the fact that the world has come to a quasi-alt, because partly because of a virus, will that draw historians to environmental history or rather than to environmental history, to understanding that the environment matters, that it has to do with the past and the present? My, my obvious answer is, of course, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't really know. I don't really know. I mean, is this going to change? And, in, you know, in the U.S., environmental history is very well positioned. Um, in Latin America, is starting to be positioned. Will the present crisis help? bring the environment to historical people who think historically, you know, place the environment as part of, uh, of history, think about history in broader terms that include the environment. I, I, I wish that that would be so, but um, I don't really know. We'll see that in the future. Yeah. And I'm sure this conversation will be part of that debate. I mean, hopefully listeners will listen and read the book and see why the environment is important. And I am, I am mostly rooted in history of medicine. And so it was wonderful to read something I'm less familiar with. But in this moment, I think these topics, environments, medicine, health, disease, everything is converging and, and showing us the how important it is and we must not forget. So I want to thank you both for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking the time for talking to us about about the book and to listeners we I really recommend for you to go and check out this book in you know in English or Spanish so thank you both John and Claudia. Thank you Lisette it's been a pleasure. Yeah likewise Lisette thank you so much for this um, it has been a pleasure.